Thank you, Han family, for the reading of Scripture. You know, I realize it's been a long time since we've been together, um, probably about six months since uh, we've seen some of these families, because I was looking at that video, I realized the kids have grown. Uh, actually, they're, they're bigger and more mature. Thank you so much for that. You know, I want to give two uh, disclaimers uh, before I begin. The first disclaimer is this, that my message this morning is not a result simply of a two weeks' worth of study and, and reflection and prayer, but rather it is a result of perhaps about 35 years of seeing and reflecting uh, men and women who had great talent and power who have failed morally. I still remember uh, one of my first years in seminary being in chapel as they announced that one of our distinguished, respected professors um, having to resign because of a moral failure. I still remember that day when my mentor professor uh, was on his knees weeping and, uh, and, and the rest of us just praying and in shock in our seats I have seen moral failure, uh, great men and women fall repeatedly, and uh, my message today is a reflection of that. The second disclaimer is this, that the story that we're going to be uh, talking about is not fiction. This is not a parable, but this is an account of real people, um, and, and it is their story, but also it reflects that which can be happening in our lives. You know, I thought as I was reflecting on this passage and as I was reflecting on the message that was being crafted that this is so relevant. And, and perhaps I'm biased because I'm a male. I think this is so relevant to men. I was so tempted, in fact, to email all the men of Living Hope to say, hey, I want you to listen in particular today because I think this applies to you. So please, if you are a male, listen up. Although this applies to all of us, men and women. The story begins with King Herod in verses 14 through 16. He hears of Jesus who had become, who has becoming more uh, known throughout the region. Some speculate that he is Elijah, the prophet who will uh, for uh, tell of the coming of Christ. Others speculate that he is another prophet. Others speculate that he was perhaps the reincarnated John the Baptist. Herod, who was not a Jew, concludes that it must be John. And he relates it to his personal experience. It must be John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. It sounds like the comments of a, a man who has been haunted by something he had done in the past. He is Herod, the most powerful man in the region, yet he sounds like someone who is enslaved by guilt. The story continues to explain what happened in the past that caused Herod to be haunted by his past actions. And I believe it reveals three things, three fatal flaws of how great men and women can fall so much. I believe it is a warning to 
many of us, those of us who have a certain degree of power, if you are a CEO of a company, if you are a business owner, if you are simply a manager with employees underneath you, if you are a parent, a law enforcement, if you are a teacher, if you are a mentor, in fact, if you are anyone who relate to other people, I believe this is a warning to all of us. Three fatal flaws. The first fatal flaw that Herod had was his inability to control lust. Inability to control his lust. This was the problem that we begin with. And we are told in verse 17 that Herod was married to a woman by the name of Herodias. And that for some reason, John thought that marriage was unlawful or immoral. And we are told that that particular marriage was immoral or unlawful because uh, she was his brother's wife. She used to be his brother Herod's, I mean, Philip's wife. Um, but in actuality, when we look at history more in detail, that the situation is a lot more complex than we like to think. Um, if we can look over here. We're going to begin with uh, Herod the Great, and this is their little family tree, somewhat incomplete, but still is, it is helpful to us. Herod the Great was the Herod in, in which, if you remember, when Jesus was born, he became so suspicious and, and paranoid that he massacred all the little boys in that uh, village. Uh, he was known as a very cruel, suspicious, uh, paranoid ruler, but at the same time, he is known as Herod the Great because he had immense, immense power. Now, he had many wives. These are just five of his wives. He first had uh, Doris as his wife, and uh, with Doris, they had a son by the name of Antipater. Now, Herod the Great was so suspicious of Antipater that Antipater was murdered by his own father. He then married uh, Mariamne, the Hasmonean, and through Mariamne, he had two sons, Alexander and Aristobulus. Both also were murdered by Herod the Great. Herod the Great was such a paranoid, a cruel individual that there was a saying that it is safer to be Herod's pig than his son. Um, through Aristobulus, they had a daughter by the name of Herodias, and she is the person that we are dealing with today in this particular passage, and we'll tell you how. Um, Herod the Great also married another Mariamne, and through her, uh, they had a son, Herod Philip. And it is Herod Philip who married, listen carefully, his niece, Herodias. And uh, through Herodias, they had a daughter, Salome. Okay? Now, Herod the Great married again uh, to uh, Malthaki, and through Malthaki, they had two sons, Herod Antipas and Archelaus. Now, it is Herod Antipas that is in the, the main character of our passage to today. Uh, and he's called in our passage King Herod, but uh, when we look at him in the whole kind of family tree, we identify him as Herod Antipas. So Herod Antipas marries Herodias. So now I want you to look carefully. Herodias is both his niece and his half-brother's wife, 
And so what Herod Antipas does is he visits his half-brother Herod Philip in Rome and he seduces, convinces Herodias to leave her husband and come with him. And her daughter, Salome, uh, accompanies her and becomes Herod's uh, legal daughter. And just to kind of round things off, uh, they had an, uh, Herod the Great married again to uh, Cleopatra of Jerusalem, and they had a son, Philip the Tetrarch, who will marry Salome here. So uh, he also will marry his niece. I hope you got all that, and if it's confusing, it is confusing. Now, what is interesting is this. If you look at their history, uh, we know that Herod Antipas, or King Herod that we're talking about, was an immensely ambitious individual. He inherited a portion of Herod the Great, his father's kingdom, and he strove to be King Herod in that same sense. Um, and in fact, one of the ways in which he strove uh, to become more powerful is through a marriage of convenience. He married uh, the daughter of a, a nearby king uh, by the name of Phasaelius, uh, that's the daughter's name, who was the daughter of King Aretas, who was the king of the Nabataeans, probably the most powerful king in that region outside of Herod himself. But what is interesting, what is um, just kind of irrational about what is going on here is this, that although Herod was extremely ambitious, that what he does in terms of seducing and marrying Herodias was irrational. Uh, marrying Herodias, uh, taking her from his brother made no political sense. It was a political net loss. In addition, he had to leave his wife, his current wife, would have turned uh, a former ally into an enemy. Here's the question. Why did Herod pursue Herodias? He saw Herodias, who was already married. Um, he saw himself, who was already married. It made no sense to break up two marriages. Why did he marry someone who was both his niece and his sister-in-law, knowing that it was immoral and legal, illegal, and it would anger uh, the people whom he would rule? Why did he do all of that? Why did he pursue immorality? And the answer is somewhat simple. Although he was ambitious and although he was calculating, he pursued Herodias because he simply wanted to. He was driven by his lust. You know, um, if you have not pursued another man's wife, if you have not left your wife for the sake of another woman, I don't know if it's necessarily because uh, you and I are more moral. Uh, according to a recent data gathered by the General Social Survey, they interviewed men and women across America and found that 20%, 20% of American men had sex with someone other than their spouse while married. 13% of American women had 
sex with someone other than their spouse while married. And, and many of us who are watching or, or you know, participating in the service may say, well, you know, I'm glad I'm not part of that 20 or 13%. Another survey said that the percentage of men who say they would have an affair if they knew they would never get caught is, did you catch that? The percentage of married men who say that they would have an affair if they knew that were, there would be absolutely no consequence is 74%. The difference between Herod and many of us, perhaps, is not that we did not want to sin, but rather we were afraid of the consequence. The problem with Herod is that he was a powerful individual. And sociologists talk about this thing called uh, the, the power poisoning, power poisoning. What happens is that power begins to poison, impact one's ability to think properly and to treat other people in a way that someone without power would. They talk about someone with power, the symptoms of that power poisoning, as focusing more on your own needs and wants and less on the needs and reactions of others, having less empathy for others, acting like the rules don't apply to you, and exhibiting less impulse control. Why did Herod irrationally pursue Herodias? Not simply because he wanted to, but because he could. That was his fatal flaw. And I believe that is <clears throat> the fatal flaw that many, many of us can fall into. And the only uh, difference between uh, Herod and many of us is we simply don't have the power to do what we want to do. The story continues and it reveals a second fatal flaw. His first fatal flaw was his inability to control lust and his second fatal flaw was his reluctance to own wrong. His reluctance to own wrong. <clears throat> Herod uh, was a powerful individual, and he used his power to arrest John, the baptizer. But there was another player behind the scene, and it says in verse 19 that his wife Herodias had a grudge against John, the baptizer, and wanted to put him to death. And if you really think about who Herodias was, she was the person who married her uncle and then left him to marry a different uncle. To, it was like a step up in a way. She knew that it was immoral and illegal in any shape and sense, but she did so anyway. And she sits on the throne seething against this Jewish holy man who has been speaking against her. And I'm not defending Herod here, but it is evident that Herodias wanted blood. And he, she eventually uh, leveraged her position against uh, the weak-minded husband, Herod. And, and I want to say something here. While John is preaching repentance motivated by restoration, 
Herodias is also preaching and also speaking into the ears of her husband, Herod. And her motivation is grudge. And what she wanted is destruction. You know, oftentimes people can say something is wrong uh, for two different reasons. John was preaching a sin and his motivation was repentance, restoration. And she is whispering into the ears of Herod saying he must be destroyed. I believe Christ wants us to condemn wrong, but uh, not in a way that is destructive, but it is restorative. Herod did his part in some ways. He kept John safe. It says uh, he feared John, knowing that he was a holy and righteous man. His conscience told him that John was right. And that John was from God. Imagine John the baptizer coming out of his uh, dark jail cell and having an audience uh, and of one, King Herod. And he would preach on a regular basis to this one individual. John in his uh, church service, would quote Leviticus 18, 16, you shall not cover the nakedness of your brother's wife, it is your brother's nakedness. Leviticus 20, 21, if a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. Herod would, I mean, John would pull no punches. But I do not believe John simply condemned, but he tried to restore, as he did in Matthew 3, 2, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. John was not motivated to simply destroy, but to win people over. Oftentimes, Christians and non-Christians alike make moral judgments on the guilty, but that judgment is motivated by destruction and not of restoration, and we need to check our hearts, men and women. What John was doing was giving Herod a second chance, a, a chance to be right with God. When Herod heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. The moral conscience of Herod understood that what John was saying was right, was, was pure, was of God. And it touched something inside of his heart. And the Holy Spirit was convicting, convicting him. And yet he found it perplexing. The word uh, implies that he was lost and he had doubt. This was Herod's moment. Here was an opportunity for him to repent. He literally had uh, God's messenger speaking directly to him, giving him an opportunity to, to repent and be right with God. The Holy Spirit was tugging at his heart. And though he was convicted of sin, he was in this place, perplexed. He could not own his wrong. He could not say that he was a sinner and face the consequence of his sins. He did not have the moral courage. And so he did what many people do. He did what many of us do when convicted with sin, but we lack the courage uh, to to own up to our sins. He does not reject the message. 
but he does not repent of his sins. And what he does, he, he, he vacillates and he chooses religion instead. Religion means for Herod, he continues to listen to the message of John the Baptist. He goes to church every week and he intellectually consumes and he is satisfied. He is emotionally satisfied with what he's hearing and thinking that that's good enough. But he doesn't truly turn and repent. You know, this is what I, I believe we often do. Listen, Christian. Listen, church. I think this is one of our great flaws in the church. That when we are convicted by the Holy Spirit, that we enjoy the message. We, in, in fact, sometimes enjoy being convicted and feeling guilty. And we feel like when we feel guilty or when we are convicted, that alone is redemption. But we don't fully receive and, and turn to repentance. And we saddle the, the fence and we take religion instead. And do you know uh, what a marker is that you are simply writing religion instead of true repentance? Listen, uh, this is a test. Christian, if your confession, if your repentance uh, has a side of but, you know that it's not true repentance. If your repentance is always accompanied by a but, you know that's not true repentance. When we, uh, it's when we say, sorry, Lord, for hating on that person for gossiping and slandering and harboring bitterness, but she wronged me or he was so insensitive. Lord, I confess for my private sins, I am so wrong, but I was under so much stress. And, and it's not as bad as what those other people are doing. Lord, I confess that I lacked integrity in terms of how I handle my money. But I'm trying hard to give faithfully to the church for the work of the gospel. When we attach but to our confession, it is religion and it's not repentance. We are doing exactly what Herod is doing. We're, not, uh, we're being reluctant to own our sins, own our wrong. And that eventually will become a license for us to continue to sin. It will become our fatal flaw. You know, oftentimes it's not necessarily the sin that causes us the problem. In fact, uh, everyone sins. There is no person free from sin, but rather it is how we deal with sin. It is whether we truly own it and say it's all mine. I have no one else to blame and to confess fully or not. Do you know why uh, in our culture today we use the suffix gate to talk about a lot of the scandals? Like the China gate or email gate or deflate gate is in football. And um, it all stemmed from a scandal that happened in 1972. Um, it was a break-in of a 
of, uh, of a Democratic campaign headquarter uh, under the then Republican president of Richard Nixon, who, by the way, was born in Yorba Linda, went to school in Whittier and Fullerton. He's a, a local individual. And what we are uh, told is that although the break-in was a, a grave political uh, sin, the reason why eventually Richard Nixon had to uh, resign in disgrace was not necessarily the breakup, but was the cover-up. It was not necessarily the sin, but how he dealt with the sin. His reluctance to own the wrong. We all make mistakes. No man or woman is free of sin. But it's how we deal with it. It's if we can own it or not. Repentance will sound like this. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Repentance sounds like this. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This was the road to redemption to be able to own our sins. There is a a final and third fatal flaw that Herod possesses. It was impossible for Herod to remain in this uh, uneasy status quo of religion where he chose neither rejecting nor repenting. Something had to break and it happened on his birthday. We're told that on his birthday he gathered the military commanders and nobles and leading men of Galilee, the who's who of the area. And you know, it is a way for him to brag. That's what we do sometimes. We gather people whom we want uh, to impress and say, come, see how powerful, how impressive I am. And, and you tell me how great I am. We post humble uh, acts of service to invite praise. We give a compliment in order to uh, receive a compliment back. And we gather people uh, and so that they can adore us. And at this birthday party, uh, the daughter of Herodias, Salome, danced before him and the guests. Uh, remember, this is his stepdaughter. And it says that that dancing pleased him and the guests. A lot of commentators believe that normally when a banquet like this happened, the dancing is done by... Uh, not by someone of nobility, but someone of um, ignobility, a prostitute. Uh, and the dance might have been sensual in nature. It pleased Herod and his guests, and Herod makes a big gesture. And it's the kind of stuff that people do when they're out of control and perhaps a little drunk. Ask, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my Kingdom, of course, is an absolutely ridiculous, stupid promise. But it's the kind of stupid things that people do when they're uh, they want to impress other people and they're a little bit drunk. You know, oftentimes people just say stupid things. We say stupid things. Uh, one of my favorite proverbs, Proverbs seventeen twenty eight, uh, and I remember this even from college. <clears throat> And uh, you can write this down. Even a, fool when, um, even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he is deemed intelligent. 
Oftentimes it is when we open our mouths and make bold, stupid, audacious statements that we make mistakes. The girl, Salome, goes to her mother, what, pro, uh, what should I ask my stepfather? And the mom, um, I believe she had been orchestrating this the whole time, tells her daughter, go ask for the head of John the Baptizer on a platter. Now I want you to kind of understand uh, the exact nature of, of what she's asking. She's asking for his execution. That's what she wanted. She held a grudge the whole time. And she's asking in, in a very specific way, give me his head so that he's dead for sure, on a platter, uh, delivered to us so that all the guests may see. And it's forcing Herod's hand. Verse 26, and the king was exceedingly sorry because he'd been playing religion the whole time. He, John, the, the life of John the baptizer had been kind of telling him, you know, I'm not that bad. At least I didn't murder him. And I can still go to church every week and listen to him. But Herodias is forcing his hand. No, you have to choose. The king was exceedingly sorry. And this was, I believe, his last chance. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. He could have, at this moment, he could have said, it was my bad for making this rash promise. No, I cannot kill John the baptizer. What else would you like, girl? If he had done something like that, it would have embarrassed him and as someone of his stature, it might have humiliated him. But he was unwilling to face humiliation. And this was his third fatal flaw. The same motivation that caused him to gather the guests and the same motivation that caused him to make this rash promise, his motivation to want to be praised by people, his motivation to want to be respected by people, to be admired by others, that ego, that pride, that unrelenting need, desire to be respected, admired, accepted. That is what caused him to be unwilling to say, I was wrong. He sounds like some of us, doesn't he? Herod's fatal flaw revolved around greatness. Remember, he is living under the shadow of his father, Herod the Great. He wanted to be great. He thought he was great. He strove to be great. He wanted to be seen as great. He was driven to be great. And he feared anything that would interfere with his ambition to be great. And so he had John beheaded. The executioner beheads John, and the bloody head is literally delivered on a platter to uh, Herodias and Salome. And the irony here is that Herod had all the power, but he became powerless because his desire to be great. History tells us that Herod Antipas' story ends in a semi-tragedy. Remember his wife that he divorced? She escapes back home 
the angry father becomes now an enemy of Herod, attacks Herod's territory, and deeply wounds or weakens Herod politically. Herod still wants to be called king, wants to be great, and he approaches um, the Caesar for that title to be called king. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that the, the emperor suspected Herod of conspiracy, not only rejects his desire to be called king, but exiles him to Spain. You know, as we look at the self-destructive nature, the fatal flaws of Herod, we cannot help but to compare him to his counterpart, John the Baptizer. Herod strove for greatness, and those are the qualities that became his fatal flaws, his inability to control his lust, his reluctance to own his wrong, and his unwilling to, to be humiliated. But his counterpart, John the Baptist, was exactly the opposite. He was a man of simplicity, of integrity, humility, and a sense of divine purpose that did not uh, revolve around a self-serving goal. In fact, Jesus says of John in Matthew eleven eleven, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one, listen, greater than John the Baptist. And what caused John the baptizer to be so great in God's eyes? I, I think there's this one simple answer. And, and I don't want you to miss this. It's not because John the baptizer was simply a, a man of greater moral character. That he was a, a person who, have, who had just more discipline uh, in terms of his uh, sexual appetites. Or just immense humility and honesty, it wasn't just that. And in fact, those are a result of something else. In Luke chapter 3, verse 16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John three twenty-eight and 30 you yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. He must increase, but I must decrease. Do you know why John the baptizer was so uniquely different from Herod the king? Because he knew he wasn't great. That he knew he was not moral. He knew he was not worthy. And the only one who was was Jesus. And he pointed to Jesus, leaned on Jesus, and, and, and trusted Jesus, not himself. I'm going to ask the band to come up at this time. Would you take a minute with me? Would you bow your heads, uh, those at home and those in the room? Fatal flaws. I, I believe that, and, and my heart this week, um, I, I've been weeping, I've been, I've been broken, concerned at a lot of our lives how Satan can come and take a hold of our hearts and say yes you deserve to be great you should be great you should be significant you should be loved you, sh you should be accepted and, and that becomes poison in our hearts 
And what we need to do, we need to just confess right here and that we need to own our wrong and say, no, no, I am not any of those things. And that is why I need Jesus. Would you take a minute and let, let's pray and let's, let's lean into Jesus. Lord Jesus, I come before you and I ask, on behalf of the men and women in our church in this space right now and I think about the faces and names of so many of our people me included and Lord if need be I, I pray that you would humble us humiliate us we invite that We, I pray that we are not left up to our own devices but by the hand of our gracious master you would take a hold of our lives and start chiseling away areas that we are stubborn unwilling to own our wrongs unwilling to be humbled before others but you would continue to humiliate us, humble us, so that we have no choice but to lean on your grace. We thank you for that grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.